Hey there, nature lovers. Welcome back to another episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast. Now, before we get into this week's episode, just want to put it on your radar that this being the first episode of September, Spooky Bunch is coming up. Just like last year, we're going to have a full month dedicated to spooky content for y'all. And with that will come a new Spooky Bunch merch drop. Nothing to report on it so far. No links for you to hit, but just want to put it on your radar so that you can keep an eye on it for it because this year is going to be bigger and better than anything we've ever done on this podcast before. We're excited for it and hope y'all are as well, but let's get into it. Welcome back, nature lovers, to another episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast where we talk everything conservation, education, and my personal favorite, fascination. My name is Matt, and I'm joined by my two very good friends and co-hosts. I'm CJ. And I'm Brittany. And today is going to be a pretty extreme episode. Now, before I get into any of that... Matt, why is it going to be so extreme? Oh, we'll get there. Okay. Oh, we'll get there. Now, before we get into any of that, it's always good of me as a good individual to ask my good (laughs) friends and co-hosts how their weeks have been. So, CJ, how you been doing this past week? You make me laugh, Matthew. You make me laugh. I try. I try. I've been. I've been good. I've been good. I'm really tired this week. I'm not gonna lie. I yesterday, as as of the release of this episode, so the fifth of September, um, I had a, a very small gathering at my home so all week i'd been cleaning my home the one that i just moved into with a good friend of the podcast jack cross and it's exhausting to do that after moving and also working nine plus hours so i'm very tired but i'm good well that's good to hear i um hope you get some time for sleep soon cj that's very important for your bodily anatomy Brittany, how you doing this week i think we got a special week coming up don't we huh Oh yeah, it's I'm gearing up for birthday week. Mm-hmm. Um, I am actually super excited because uh, when this will this episode release, it'll be one day before my birthday, and I'm going to a Jonas Brothers concert. Um, so I'm just gonna travel to the year 3000. Um, apparently Very there's not much good. to say, but uh, they live underwater, but I heard. they live underwater. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm so excited to get to see Big Time Rush. <laughs> Wait, I've always on. wanted did, did to you see my great 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 granddaughter. She's doing fine. Good. Good. Yeah. All right. Let's gloss over the Big Time Rush joke. Anyways, uh, 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 <laughs> happy <laughs> birthday, Brittany! Thanks. Everyone, please go on social media and hound Brittany with happy birthdays because we like we like to assault people with affection here at the Brady Bunch Podcast. And hope you enjoyed that concert. I'm super pumped. Um, but also, Big Time Rush is a little too young for me. It wasn't during my time. Yeah, Brittany, how, Brittany, how old are you turning? Shut up. We're not talking about <laughs> it. Oh, CJ, you can't do that. Matt, mm-hmm. how are you doing this week? I'm actually doing great. Um, just started TAing, and so far, I'm pretty excited about how this semester is going to go. Um, it's cool to be within the realm of college i think instead of just like going through it and you you know you automatically see all these people who i remember looking up to my ta and my ta helped me a lot as far as like finding my path with working with dave and all that so it's super exciting to kind of be that role for people that i was literally just four years ago but the other thing too is 
I just recently had a very um, good uh, visit from the Birdie Bunch podcast's first ever here of my girlfriend, my lovely girlfriend, Erin. She came out and visited, and we went to Loveland, Ohio, which was very, very nice. Um, have great bike trails and nature Did stuff. Did you see any frogs there? Unfortunately, no. That was, you know, critique of the town of Loveland. Loveland, you're lovely. You're beautiful. You got beautiful shops. You need some frog merch, right? When I go to Rhinelander, Wisconsin, I can't get rid of the hodag. He be everywhere. I couldn't find a single Loveland frog thing, and it kind of bummed me out a little bit. Just going to well, say. If you're, if you're itching for some Loveland frog merch, you can go to our website because next week the cryptid merch leaves and doesn't come back until next year. Yeah, please go and get it. Cryptid merch is going soon, folks. Mm-hmm. There will be a Loveland frog. Will be. There is a Loveland frog, frog on it. Yeah. yeah. I did that. That was on purpose. Um, but nonetheless, it was cool to see a place steeped with such interesting history as far as what I'm interested in. And then to be able to go to like Newport, Kentucky and meet all these environmentally sound, you know, looking people and uh, with her. And it was just a lot of fun. So, Aaron, thank you for visiting. If you're listening, super glad to hear that y'all are doing well. And just as a reminder, everyone wish Brittany a happy, happy McFrickin birthday. Now, to celebrate that birthday, Let's get into our creature feature. This week's creature feature is a very special bird, one of my actual favorites, a bird called the bar-tailed godwit. Now, the bar-tailed godwit is a member of the sandpiper family, and it's really easily identifiable when seen by its loud calls and its rich cinnamon coloration. However, finding this bird in a crowd may prove to be quite challenging. You see, each year the bar-tailed godwit migrates over 6,800 miles from the coast of Alaska to the coast of New Zealand. The distance they travel is really impressive on its own, but these incredible birds do so on a flight with absolutely no stops. One study actually showed a bar-tailed godwit flying for a week straight to cross this ocean. It is the longest single non-stop flight by any bird ever recorded. In order to complete this treacherous journey, the godwit absorbs 25% of their total body tissue. And that space is then filled with energy-rich fat. Their hearts and chest muscles also grow to give them the oxygen and energy they need to survive the long journey in the air. They take bulking up for the winter to an absolutely whole new level. These birds are setting impressive migration records, but as you'll find out, they're not the only animals with some amazing achievements. You see, there's nothing mundane in nature. All animals, especially the ones we talk about today, are extreme. We'll get into more marvels of the natural world a little bit later on, but for now, there always seems to be some nature in the news. Let's hit some current events. So my current event this week uh, is, is from CNN, but it was covered by a bunch of different news sources just because it was kind of wild. So it's titled, Giant Tortoise Seen Attacking and Eating Baby Bird for First Time in the Wild in a Horrifying Incident. So researchers have captured the moment when a live-long vegetarian broke rank to eat meat. 
And what made it even more horrifying was the fact that it was a tortoise. Scientists captured the moment on video when a Sikeli's giant tortoise, previously thought to be a vegetarian, attacked and ate a turn chick in what they say is the first documentation of deliberate hunting in any wild tortoise species. This is really, really wild behavior, and it's never before seen in wild tortoises. There's been tortoises that have been observed eating meat, and it's been like carrion. Like, it's never been like killing an animal, but this is like the first recorded case of a tortoise actively seeking out meat and like hunting it. It's a really wild story, and it, the researchers just went on to talk more about how they didn't quite know what the tortoise was doing. So they saw it moving in a strange way, and once they realized what it was doing, they started filming and they got it on camera. It was moving like incredibly deliberately, not just like wandering about like tortoises do, but like actively staring down this little turn, walking straight at it, clearly intending to do something. And the scientists said that that suggests that it was doing it with intent. It knew what it was doing and it's done it before, which is wild. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to know what that bird did to piss off the tortoise. <laughs> Exist. I, I think the tortoise was just real hungry and really was sick of eating salads. So. I'm curious what, what that means then for the tortoises and what they're not getting from their like their traditional wild like diet. Because like clearly there's something going on like mm -hmm. in yeah. you know nutritionally that it's missing. That's, to a really, that's a really great question. Experts, you know, who have been doing this study and followed these, these Kelly's giant tortoises, which I guess is a subspecies of the Aldover giant tortoise, described this new hunting behavior. They said it was caused by the unusual combination of this tree nesting turn colony uh, and the giant tortoise population just coming to collide. They've never really collided in that way before. It's not uncharacteristic for lethal attacks between species to happen in the wild, especially with territories, you know, becoming increasingly less and less common. For example, chimpanzees were observed killing gorillas in the wild for the first time in 2019, just because habitat was less and less accessible. So that's what they really think is happening. It's just that there's not available habitat and they're just competing for resources. So that's, so, that's, that's the leading theory. So you mean to tell me that we just watched a cosplayed version of West Side Story reenacted on the real stage. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's turns. Not, it's not, it's not the sharks and the jets. It's the turns and Go. the tortoises. No turns and torts. Very good. Turns Very and good. Torts. I apologize. Very good. Yeah. Well, thank you for documenting that, CJ, and bringing that up. Well, I didn't know. Just to clarify, I didn't document it. Just no, you documented it. No, 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 no. I, I didn't go to Aldabra. I did not document it. You literally told the tortoise to do it. I was there. No, no. This is slander. <laughs> this is slander. I did this not. Holds, this whole definite court law. I did not. <laughs> I did not. Oh, I, <laughs> I did not hit her. I did not. I'm putting that clip in right now. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bull. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. Well, CJ, whatever your role that you had to play in this whole event, thank you for bringing it up, even though I always hate hearing about a bird death, but at the end of the day, that's life. Frank Sinatra said it best. Anyways. My current event comes from Manga Bay. It's a source that I've used very regularly. The title of this article is called Studies Debunk Nature is Healing Narrative from 2020 Lockdowns. And that immediately pinged my interest a little bit because 
I'll be honest, you know, uh, during the lockdown uh, last year, 2020, I watched the news a lot. You know, I didn't have a lot of time to do very much. So I watched the news and there was in that first week, week and a half, two weeks of when everything was really, really, really locked down across the world. You saw all these articles talking about there's dolphins back in the Hudson River and oh, there's a civet running across the street. The wild is returned to the wilderness in the the urban environment. I don't know, but I remember seeing that and just thinking, wow, this is pretty crazy. And a lot of studies now are researching posthumously the effect that the global pandemic had on our environment. Everyone kind of started talking about how smog dissipated and wild animals were reclaiming cities and that carbon emissions went down. And there was a lot of anecdotal talk about all that stuff, but now scientists are finally getting to the bottom of it. And the article kind of talks in multiple parts and starts out with air pollution and all the lockdowns and, you know, stuff that contributes to climate change, the NOx and the carbon monoxide concentrations and all that. And like people said, you know, a lot of noxious fumes and stuff, greenhouse gases, all did go down, right? Their concentration in the atmosphere temporarily went down. However, it's important to note that scientists are looking and seeing that even though this was the biggest annual drop in carbon dioxide emissions in ever recorded times, that short-term drop in those emissions isn't going to contribute to solving global climate change, right? It's not something that is going to fix the scenario because, first of all, as the world has reopened, we've gone right back to the way that we're using things. So instead, essentially, the way scientists are using that is that this is another way to confirm that the human activity, the stuff that we do, the stuff that we put into our air is causing climate change. There's almost next to no refuting that carbon dioxide emissions are rising because of us. And it creates a really solid argument that with the lockdown having decreased all that stuff, we're a big part of why that this is a problem. And then they go into talking about animals running wild, right? Animals reclaiming cities. And what they saw was by comparing iNaturalist data between, you know, before the pandemic and after the pandemic, weirdly enough, Animals didn't recolonize urban areas based on like when, you know, where animals were sighted before and during the pandemic. They actually ventured more so into rural ones. This is kind of antithetical to what you would think. And there's still kind of being research done into why some, you know, some theories could be just that like urban environments tend to have more resources for scavengers and stuff like that. So where you see bears going into cities to raid garbage and all that fun stuff you know they weren't providing as much of that immediate food source as possible which could be a reason why the only species that went up into urban environments was the puma which is attributed almost directly to its really solitary nature but the biggest thing that the scientists said is that the reason that we were noticing these animals is because for once with the pandemic we stopped and we looked around us. And that was something that we talked about last year, right? With the global pandemic, so many people returned to the outdoors, some for the first time in their lives, right? The global pandemic gave people the access and the opportunity to really sit back and get to know their local environments. 
And when they saw all these species, they're like, holy crap, there's bears in here. Look, they're recolonizing the suburbs. They were always there. The, the raccoons and the possum and the foxes and the coyotes, they were always there. We just finally noticed them. Now, one thing people were lauding for a while is that the pandemic actually would be good for the environment. And studies are showing that's not actually the case, um, specifically attributed to increased plastic use because everyone was shopping online. There was a lot more shipping. Um, there was also a lot more soap use, which you wouldn't think of that being a problem. But when soap ends up in our waterways, it's particularly destructive for a lot of organisms. And so pollution is something that we're really worried about right now. We could see lasting effects based on the pollution that we encountered. But nonetheless, removing people from the outdoors, from the bustling city life and meeting up with people and going out shopping and all that, the global pandemic gave us a great insight as to how we interact with our environment. And it's up to us now to go and determine what role we want to play going forward. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I remember watching stories as like the pandemic first hit and talking about how, oh my goodness, like look at all of these animals that are reclaiming. And it's very interesting to now like look back and be like, actually, no, like just kidding. You guys are just more observant now. I remember in the first season being on as a guest and we were talking about people having the opportunity to be able to kind of go out into nature and be able to explore a little bit more and people not really knowing what they were doing and kind of causing conflict in that way. Um, and I think this is just another interesting plot twist of just like how everyday life and people's hustle and bustle make a lot of times disconnects a lot of people to wildlife and, and nature. And I think sometimes I know for me specifically, I for get that 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 people aren't as connected because I'm so connected my job being on a podcast and just that's how I live my life and so it's just really interesting to hear articles like this kind of talk about what it's like for like the average everyday person that's not in the field and not really trying to stay connected yeah to both of your points you know in that article Matt it's really interesting to see all those comments especially given the beginning of 2020, right before the pandemic, with things like the Australian bushfires. Like, we saw a lot of habitat destruction all over the globe right at the end of 2019, beginning of 2020. And so the the planet is healing narrative really just could have come from, well, we've put out these human-caused disasters, and now no one's actually causing any. So nature's just being nature. So I think the the, the entire narrative is just a really interesting one to discuss. And I'm really, really glad that we got an opportunity to do that today because this is such a fascinating topic in terms of, you know, I, I, something I'm really interested in talking about is how the media influences how we view things. And that narrative was really pushed through the media really, really heavily at the beginning of the pandemic. And especially in encouraging people to stay home, right? Like stay home because nature is healing. Like we love nature, which good message, incorrect. So fascinating. Thanks for sharing that, Matt. Brittany, what's your current event? So my current event also comes from um, from the same news source as Matt's, and it's the title is not just for humans. Scientists turns to vaccines to save endangered species. So in the beginning of the article, it kind of talks about the reasons why 
historically, we have given vaccinations to animals between livestock and um, dogs and and things like that, um, raccoons. The reason why we've given vaccines is not for necessarily the animal's benefit, but it's really been because of, for it's been for human benefits to make sure that zoonotic diseases like rabies and things like that aren't aren't out there being transmitted to us. And so um, it starts talking about there was a couple of institutions that started doing vaccines for conservation. So changing the narrative of vaccinating animals for human benefit to just vaccinating animals for their own benefit and being and, and for them to be able to survive. So it starts talking about like some of the first species that they did it for actually in canids for um, distemper. And then it, the whole article kind of talks about different initiatives that they've tried to start for different animal species. So they started talking about potentially vaccinating the prairie dog for the plague or vaccinating bats for white nose syndrome. And they start going down this list where they're talking about koalas and penguins and things like that. And they do talk about that there's like one really major problem in trying to do vaccinations, um, which is administration. So how do you administer vaccinations to all of these wild animals? And they had different solutions for different for different animals. And so like the bats for with vaccinating for white nose syndrome, they're talking about treating it where it was like a spray and you spray their their colonies, like the groups of bats and stuff like that, um, all at once and it kind of gets into their system. And they talk about not only just treating koalas for chlamydia, but actually just vaccinating them beforehand before they get chlamydia. And they just talk about the pros and cons and the challenges and things like that. And I think the just the discussion is really interesting because when we think about the animals that we normally vaccinate, it is like livestock or it's your dog and your cat at home for rabies. And they're all, they are, they're all varied for human gain and growth. And I, I think it's really interesting to talk about actually just looking at vaccines as another way of conservation. I think it brings up other questions. But I think it's really cool to to potentially do that. I know um, we've talked in the past here on the podcast about when COVID first hit and they were starting to do vaccines. They vaccinated orangutans and bonobos and gorillas for COVID. And I thought that was really interesting. So it's it's curious to see kind of their success and what they're really what winds up happening. Cause this is all in they're all in trial stages and just kind of talks. This is another topic that I just find really, really interesting. This is not a conversation that's going away anytime soon. So thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, thanks a ton. It's super interesting to see that this is getting the nod going forward that might even be more prominent than what we originally anticipated. So thank you for bringing that up. Well, I'd say that's about enough news for y'all. You know, everyone wants to get away from that. So let's get into the main topic of today's episode.
Growing up, I was an Animal Planet boy. While all my peers were watching Disney and Nickelodeon, and I was tuning into weekly shows like The Crocodile Hunter, or even my guilty pleasure, yes, Finding Bigfoot. From 2002 to 2007, though, one of my favorites was airing regularly, The Most Extreme. I can still remember the intro sequence with the theme song, the voice who stated the name of the show. Um, It all sticks really clearly. But some of the coolest things I've retained were all the crazy species that put up these insane stats and world records within the animal realm. So consider this episode to be an homage to my now lost childhood. Because today we're going to be counting down some of the world's most extreme animal records. To kick off this list, I'd say it's only fitting to hit upon the OG, the largest animal in the world, the blue whale. In fact, not only is the blue whale the largest animal that can be found on Earth today, it's also the largest one we have ever found. Larger than the dinosaurs and the mosasaurs and literally anything else that once dominated the Earth in a different era. Blue whales are pretty friggin' big, growing up to 100 feet in length. Now, if you're an American football fan, that's about one-third of a standard field. But if you're not, that's about three school buses all in a line, front to back. They can weigh up to 330,000 pounds, which is actually only possible because they're marine mammals. Water is a buoyant material and holds the whale up, keeping its bodily structure in place. When placed on land, blue whales are so heavy and have so much mass that the force of gravity upon their bodies legitimately crushes their internal organs, which, by the way, are also a size that's nothing to scoff at. You see, a blue whale's heart can weigh as much as a car, and its tongue is so big that it can weigh as much as a full-grown elephant. Suffice to say, it takes a lot of food to support the growth of an organism that big, So naturally, blue whales chose to eat one of the smallest food sources possibly available, krill. Krill are these tiny little shrimp-looking things that float in massive schools in the water column, and blue whales will filter through water with their baleen to catch and consume them. An adult blue whale can consume 36,000 kilograms of the buggers a day. That's a lot of krill. In fact, by my calculations... With the average weight of krill being 2 grams and a kilogram being 1,000 grams, that comes up to approximately 18 million individual krill being eaten on average per day. You see, blue whales don't always eat krill, though, because being mammals, their offspring are provided milk when they're young. These offspring will drink more than 600 liters of this stuff each day, And the most insane stat I could come up with is that they grow 90 kilograms per day in their first year of life. That is 220 pounds every single day for a whole year. It's only fitting that the start of this most extreme list feature one of the mostest extreme animals to ever exist. Whale, whale, whale. What an extreme animal. Brittany, did you do that on porpoise? You know, who doesn't love a porpoiseful joke? <laughs> oh, man. I'm just going to wave goodbye. Ha, 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 dolphin. 
whilst keeping with the uh, sea life type animals, uh, we're going to talk about the African lungfish. And what makes the African lungfish show so extreme is the fact that they can actually live up to a year out of water. And so basically, these lungfish have this adaptation where they not only have gills, but they have two lungs that allow them to breathe um, out of water for about a year. Um, and that's because where they live, when dry season hits, instead of there being a nice pond or river to be able to live in, it turns basically all into mud. And so they've adapted over time and evolved to have these two lungs to be able to breathe um, during that time period. But not only do are they able to breathe for a year out of water, but these guys can actually hibernate for four years. So what they do is they have a like this little mucusy substance that they cover themselves in, and uh, which then hardens and forms a cocoon-like structure around them. And they pretty much just feast on themselves. And they can do this for like four years. Um, so this little fish has really been able to adapt to become like this extreme survivor. And it's, it's really weird to think about a fish being able to breathe and just like hang out. But it does. It does it. It's there. It's cool. So we are uh, continuing on the theme here and discussing some water animals. But my, my, my most extreme creature here doesn't exclusively live in the water, just like the lungfish. Not a fish, not a mammal, not an amphibian. My, my creature is a reptile. And this creature has the strongest bite force of any creature on the entire planet Earth. They are one of the longest reptiles on the planet. They're one of the heaviest reptiles on the planet. Their maximum bite force delivered a crushing 16,000 newtons of force, which is more than 3.5 times of the previous record holder, the spotted hyena. This creature has a stronger bite force than that of the great white shark. And this creature is, you may have guessed, the saltwater crocodile. The saltwater crocodile is one of my favorite species of animals on the planet, and they are just so incredibly beautiful. They are a species of crocodilians that can get over 20 feet long, um, and then compared to other species, they have the strongest bite force. With a full mouth of 66 teeth on average and the greatest bite pressure of any animal in the world, Saltwater crocodiles are a definite, definite extreme not to be messed with. So definitely, uh, you know, we, we, we love a saltwater crocodile and uh, we love reptiles. All right. Well, from the water to the to the air, our next our next animal uh, is one that is the fastest animal on Earth. And unlike most people might think it is not the cheetah is actually gonna be the peregrine falcon. So these little birds are actually able to fly up to a 200 miles per hour. Um, and this is not just them flying around all dilly-dally. 
Um, it is while they're trying to hunt down their prey, these guys will fly up and then dive straight on down at speeds up to 200 miles per hour to catch their prey. And they can kill their prey solely on impact of them catching them because of just how fast they can fly. These guys, uh, unfortunately, were once really endangered. They, because they are, um, they're able to, because of their hunting tactic, tactics, a lot of times they'll hang out on high cliffs to be able to kind of get up a little bit higher and be able to dive bomb down. Um, but they are actually found in Illinois. And a lot of times they'll use uh, like Chicago skyscrapers to be able as like a mock, uh, a mount, a mock, oh. sometimes they'll use the skyscrapers as a mock cliff um, and be able to hang out up there. But unfortunately what has happened in the past is um, their nesting sites were taken down from like people just like cleaning up the the roofs and things like that and people not wanting nests up there. And, but thank, thanks for to conservation efforts, they've made a better comeback because people are actually realizing how important the species is and being able to, and uh, people are being asked to keep the nest sites up. Um, I know at one point people were being paid to keep their nest sites there. Um, but they're just really extreme and really cool because, like, a bird that flies that fast, first bird, first of all, birds are spooky as is. Second of all, a bird that flying that fast just kicks it up a notch of the spook level. But um, I've actually worked with peregrine falcons uh, in the past, and they're a pretty amazing species. They're I, I stand corrected. They're a pretty extreme species. They are pretty extreme and, you know, they're such a prevalent site here in Chicago. We see them pretty frequently here. You know, like Brittany mentioned, they do use those buildings like cliff faces. It's really, really impressive. So staying on theme for me here, um, you might be able to guess, you know, my, my, my uh, current event was about a species of reptile. My first extreme animal was a species of reptile. And now I'm going to talk about the most venomous species on the planet Earth. And maybe it's not exactly what you think it is. The answer is complicated, but it's also a little bit surprising what the most venomous species is on the planet. According to some researchers, this animal that produces the world's deadliest venom is actually not a snake, like you may have guessed, nor a spider, nor a jellyfish. It's a type of creature commonly associated with backyard veggie patches of French cuisine, whose name is a synonym for moving at the slowest of speeds. It is in fact a snail, but not your garden variety snail. This particular snail lives on the ocean and sports a shell that's so exquisite it is among the most desired for collectors. Their shell is conical, placing it among the 800 or so species of marine predators which make up the Conidae family, also known in English as cone snails. Cone snails are the most venomous species of animal on the planet. In life, all the cone snails used venom to hunt prey. But inside one particular shell was an arsenal of neurotoxins so diabolically complex that it might actually have harbored the secrets to prove really beneficial to human society. How could the planet's deadliest venom save lives? Well, answering that paradox requires understanding 
the anti-hero cone snail just a little bit more. Like you may have guessed, cone snails, just like other snails, are incredibly slow. So it's pretty tough for them to chase down their prey. So they don't. They don't chase them down at all. They immobilize them with their really strong venom and their chemical weapons. When an unsuspecting prey swims past, cone snails release a cloud of insulin. It's the same hormone used in life-saving drugs for diabetics, just subverted. This insulin cloud, called the Nirvana Cabal, enters the fish's blood stream through the gills, and instead of stabilizing them like it could with like a diabetic patient, their blood sugars plummet and the fish enter hypoglemic shock. They are the only animals in the world, other than humans, that have been recorded to use insulin as a weapon, which is unbelievably wild. And this is just one of the over 200 toxins that the snail concocts a fatal potion with, it, you know, and they inject it with this harpoon-like tooth that comes out of their cone. They are so unbelievably complex, and there's so many weird facts about this extreme, extreme invertebrate. I, as a diabetic, really appreciate um, this this snail. I think that's really cool. I had no idea that this even existed. And like one of my favorite freaking facts to tell people is overdosing someone in insulin is the best way to kill someone um, <laughs> because it's almost basically undetectable because by the time autopsies happen, the insulin has already run through their bodies. But uh, I think that's really cool. It's just found out in nature and I just... I can't begin to even describe how happy this this whole thing has made me. I think there's kind of a beautiful irony in this selection because I'm almost positive. I actually heard about the cone snail on like a legit episode of most extreme. Genuinely. I feel like every single one of the species that we've discussed so far has been one of the contenders on the most extreme from the saltwater crocodile to the peregrine falcon yeah. to the blue whale. Genuinely, I feel like every single species we've talked about has been a contender on the most extreme. Not yeah. me looking at the most extreme website and picking the peregrine falcon off of it. No. Oh. Funny. I didn't do wow. that. That's very funny. That's hilarious, actually. Well, I can confirm that I'm about to break that mold, unfortunately. So... This last animal on our most extreme list comes in as a surprise to both of my co-hosts. And that's mostly because I wasn't too particularly worried that they would choose something that overlapped with what I have brought to close out this episode today. To polish off this episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast and our most extreme animal record set list, I bring to you all Zach the Macaw. The world's most extreme biggest bro. What? So, so Zach is a harlequin macaw who currently lives in San Jose, California. And these birds are actually highly interesting as they're a captively bred hybrid species found almost exclusively in the pet trade, being a cross between a green wing macaw and a blue and gold macaw. The result is this really striking and joyful species of bird being described by most as pretty laid back, temper-wise, and joyful, especially as macaws come. And this may not seem like quite the resume so far, but believe me, Zach is the biggest bro of any animal I've ever heard of. 
He currently holds not one, but two world records in the Guinness Book of them. In 2011, Zach broke the record for most slam dunks by a parrot in a minute, slamming 22 of the smackaroonies in 60 seconds, presumably to send his team to the finals or maybe just stunt on the Monstars just a little bit. And that fame could have gone to his head, but rather than tap out and cash in, a year later, Zach won his second record. Most canned drinks opened by a parrot in a minute, opening 35. Now, I don't know about you, but I honestly feel like it takes me double the time just to get one open. So imagine having a bro like Zach there ready to help a guy out with a can opener attached to his face. Zach is very clearly the most extreme, the world's biggest bro that deserves to finish out this list, especially considering he didn't get the nod for the starting role he so badly deserved in the newest Space Jam film. So congratulations, Zach, on all your endeavors. What? There's only... I was going to say, I, I feel like the only reason that Zach won the most extreme of the biggest bro is because the dog that played Airbud is dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no posthumous. Although I will say, I will say that dog didn't open cans. You don't know. It ate butterscotch pudding. It could definitely. I was about to say the pudding. Dead. Yeah, but you know it could. Can we tell that Matt is back in college? Yes. Yes, we can. <laughs> <laughs> nah. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, there's another consequence, you know, with Air Button. That's, you know, there's only so many species and extremes that we could feature today. But the world is so full of them that to cover them all would probably just about reach the end of my lifespan. So if you have any more extremes you'd like to see us cover or share with us, hit us up on the social medias. You can do so, especially by reaching out to us individually. Um, CJ and Brittany. If people had any extremes that they'd like to bring up to the Birdie Bunch podcast, where could they reach you? You can find me on those social media um, on Instagram at the Brittany underscore bunch, T-H-E-B-R-I-T-T-A-N-Y underscore B-U-N-C-H. Just come say hello. Tell me what extreme animals are you think there are, and maybe you'll see some more featured on my stories this week. Any opportunity I get to post a picture of a saltwater crocodile, I will. So I'm going to post a picture of a saltwater crocodile. I Why almost picked that one and I was like, nah, CJ. Yeah. CJ. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm probably going to post a picture of a saltwater crocodile, but also in like, I don't know, three weeks, I'm getting a tattoo of a saltwater crocodile. So like, you know, <laughs> you know I'll post that in three weeks. You can find me on Instagram at cj.greco. That's cj.greco. Matt, where can we find you on the social meds? Y'all can find me on Instagram at Matt Valga. That is M-A-T-T-V's and Victor A-L-A-G-A. I haven't posted in a while, but if you would like to see some extremes, let me know. Come hit me up. You can message me or you can message the whole entire podcast as a collective at Instagram. And our handle is the Birdie Bunch Podcast. We post every single day. So if you'd like to see some more extremes, maybe and see some infographics or something like that, Ooh. definitely follow us on definitely follow us on the social media. You can also find everything we post on Instagram on Facebook as well. 
In addition, if you'd like to learn more about our podcast, maybe you find some links to our merch store, you know, any whole assortment of little fun things to do, go visit our website. It is www.thebirdiebunchpodcast.com. There you can find episodes so you can listen to this very podcast on our site, as well as you can learn about us, you know, if you'd like to get to know CJ, Brittany, and I just a little bit more. You can also find, like I said, the links to our merch store, as well as our Patreon where we would like to thank our patron, Gabe Anderley. Here's your shout-out, Gabe. Thank you for being a friend of the Birdie Bunch podcast. We really appreciate your support. Um, if you'd also like to sign up and get shouted out in the podcast or maybe, you know, access to behind-the-scenes stuff, go check us out on Patreon, which can be found in the link and our website. If you can't support the pod financially but still want to help us little folks out, Our biggest piece of advice to y'all are two things. Leave a review. We really appreciate reviews. And if you leave one, we will read it out on the podcast. We don't have any new ones as of recent, but that's always helpful for creating a better product for y'all. And two, share this podcast with a friend. If you were someone who watched Most Extreme growing up and this kind of hit the nostalgia chord like it did for me, or if you didn't and you just love learning about the stuff we talked about and you know someone who might as well, Get the word out, right? We can't be the only ones to spread the word for this podcast. We really appreciate all the help that y'all get have given us um, in spreading the word of this podcast, and we couldn't do it without you all. And so we really appreciate all the things that you do for us listening and sharing it, and just continue going forward because we want to tell as many people about conservation, give them access to learning about this stuff as possible. Now, are there any things that my good friends and co-hosts would like to add before we close out this episode of the Birdie Much Podcast? Have a good week, everybody. Mm-hmm. For context, listeners, Brittany just took herself off her mute to shake her head <laughs> and then put herself back on mute. I, like, had something in this. You know, I went to go open my mouth. It was gone. And I was like, like, no, mm-hmm. never mind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, kidding. it's very it's very clear that Brittany has nothing else to add. <laughs> Have um, a good week, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening, everybody. Yeah, thank you all for listening to another episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast, folks. So we really appreciate y'all spending another week with us, and we hope you have a good one going forward. But until we meet again, we'll catch you next time, folks. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast. We would like to thank Sarah Dunlap for designing our logos, Elliot Hyde for being our writing and production assistant, and Connor Whitman for being our music producer. The mission of the Birdie Bunch podcast is to inspire an inclusive community for conservation by using education to promote fascination.